The gist of religion, in general, can be stated pretty simply. Appease this God by doing these things, or maybe become one with the universe by doing these things. Unfortunately, Christianity over the years has been seen as little different than what I just stated. So when we hear the term, the gospel, what exactly is being said? Hey, it's Andy, and this is the 103rd episode of BNP, Biblical Narratives Podcast. Biblical detail, historical context that puts you in the action. The gospel, or the good news about what God has accomplished here on the earth, isn't hard to understand. Four basic spiritual truths shape the gospel message for what it really is. At the end of our time together, I'll walk us through what the gospel really is about. Getting into today's episode, we'll see that Paul has begun his third mission tour and arrives in Lystra. He discovers that little has been done with the tiny church there in Roman Galatia with few gatherings, poor leadership, and little fruit to show for. What happens? Well, tune in and find out. And with that, let's get started. Nearing the city gates, Apollo slows to take in his surroundings. Turning around, he sees a flurry of people rushing about him, preoccupied with their daily business duties and with heads down. Hundreds move deftly about the Lycaean road. Nearly getting his foot rolled over by a cartwheel, Apollos jumps out of harm's way and moves over to the side of the road. Straight as an arrow, the road gently declines towards the bay, where merchant ships and crews alike await their next loads of cargo, only to push away from their docks and venture off to distant lands. You there! a voice calls out from behind. Apollos turns to see a gaunt figure calling for his attention. He smirks, waves off the man, and begins to walk through the gates. Keeping in stride with him, the man tries to begin a conversation. The road to the north of here, he says as he points back towards the bay, they say it will soon be a canal that will run between the port and all the way to Centria. Apollo slows his stride, sighs, and responds. That's so, the man continues. Well, that is what the Romans are boasting anyway. Right now, the Diocas is a road where merchants and military alike will disassemble parts of their ships and cart it the four miles away from bay to bay. And that's faster from sailing around Achaia? Apollos questions. As fast as a Corinthian, the man replies. That is, if their ships are nimble enough to do that. Apollo stares back at him. Nothing? Seriously? Disappointed, the man shakes his head. You must not be from these parts. No, Apollos responds. Oh well, I'll keep throwing them. Maybe you'll catch one soon enough, the man says with a laugh. He then introduces himself. Linus. Apollos, Apollos responds. You'll find the ship movers are very efficient indeed, Linus returns. The Diocas is the road responsible for Corinth's wealth and success, you know. I wasn't aware, Apollos answers. With a wide gesture, the man proudly exclaims, This is Corinth, the epicenter of trade between the east and the west. He takes a step closer. Have you not been here before? No, 
Apollos barely gets out before him being pushed towards the city. Come along then, Linus insists. Let us familiarize with our beloved city. Opening the doors of her modest home, Eunice's eyes widen with surprise. Upon recognizing her visitor, her surprise quickly melts into fear. It's okay, Eunice, Paul gestures. Your son, he is alive and well. Eunice lets out a long sigh of relief and props herself up against her door. Her mind begins to race and she lets out an assault of additional questions. Is he with you? What are you doing here? What has become of him? Is he nearby? Where is my son? Everything is okay, Eunice, Paul calms while doing his best to relieve her angst. Timothy is in Corinth, he lets out. Corinth, Eunice replies. That's so far away. Yes, Paul admits. It is. But he's leading an assembly of wonderful people out there, and he's doing a great job. Mother, Eunice yells out. Mother, come here. Startled by the yelling, Paul interrupts. Would it be okay if I came in? Eunice catches herself and lets out a breath. Of course, please come in. Two steps into the home, Paul sees Eunice's mother and gives her a huge smile. Lois, he calls. My beloved Saul, Lois gushes as she hobbles over to embrace him. As the two hug, she then pulls back and demands, Where is my grandson? He's okay, mother, Eunice replies. He's in Achaia. Surprised by this, Lois looks back at Paul. What is my barely of age and tender Timothy doing in Greece? He's leading and teaching, mother, Eunice says loudly while leaning over to whisper to Paul. Her hearing isn't so great. Back to Lois, she continues. Our boy, he's a rabbi. Lois looks back at Paul. A rabbi? Is this true? Paul shrugs. In a matter of speaking, yes, but we tend to regard our rabbis as shepherds more than teachers. Eunice jumps in. Once you called him to serve with you, we thought we might not ever see him or you again. Why have you come here? I'm only passing through, Paul concedes. I'm on my way to Ephesus for now, but I'm deeply concerned with how some of the believers are faring here in Lystra and all over Galatia for that matter. Concerned? Eunice asks. Why? What are you concerned about? Catching himself, Paul takes a step back and says, Concern may be too strong of a word here. Look, I have been walking for some time now, and if it's okay with you, I think it would be good for me to sit for a spell. Are you okay with that? Oh, gracious me, Lois responds. Where are my manners? Yes, of course, please sit over there. She then looks over at her daughter and says, Eunice! Let's feed our guest and make up a bed. Thank you for your offer of hospitality, Paul deferentially replies. I will only be here for a short time. He pauses, then asks, Are you still meeting with other believers here in your home? Leaving the spring of Pyrene, Linus calls, Come, this way, I'll show you the forum. Maybe we'll get a look at Gallio. Apollos's eyes grow wide as he blurts out his full name, Lucius Junius Gallio Aeneas. Stopping in his tracks, Linus turns to his guest. You know him? He asks while studying the man in front of him. Where did you say you are from? Apollos waves him off. I know of him. Moreover, I know of his father, Seneca the Elder, and his brother, Seneca the Younger. 
Seeing that Linus isn't satisfied with that answer, Apollos continues, Seneca, of course, is well known throughout Alexandria. Their commentary has stirred things up in our corner of the world. I have deeply appreciated the younger's recent sentiment about the opulence found within my city, as if bragging rights were based on wealth. Yes, Alexandria is quite wealthy, isn't it? Linus observes while further calculating his own expenses for this tour. Catching his appraising gaze, Apollo steps back and says, Linus, thank you for your troubles. I will pay you to help me find an individual. Yes, Linus says jokingly, though we do have a few of them in town. Apollos chuckles. I imagine you do. But the individual in question here is a younger man. I cannot describe his appearance so much as I can share where he is from and where we might find him. Go on, Linus replies. His name is Timothy, and he comes here from the Galatian region of Anatolia, Apollos replies. I'm not aware, Linus begins. Cutting him off mid-sentence, Apollos offers an additional description, and he's Jewish. Linus's mouth falls open as he studies Apollos under a new lens. He then reflects for a moment. Ah, yes, that helps, he says. Apollos looks over at Linus with new anticipation. You must bear with me for a moment, Linus thinks aloud. Yes, 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 yes. There was a man who came into town some time ago. Oh, what was his name? Think, Linus, think. He pauses. Paulus, I believe. Apollos's eyes widen. Yes, came somewhere from Syria. Antioch, perhaps, Linus replies. Go on, Apollos entreats. Yeah, Linus slowly remembers. I gave Paulus a similar tour, much like I'm giving you here. When he saw some merchants, tent makers, I think, he turned to thank me and then sent me on my way. Husband and wife team, Apollos asks. Yes, Linus replies. In fact, it was as if they employed him on the spot and he started working for them. Do you know them? I might, Apollos replies. Ooh, Linus cautions. I don't know, my friend. You're seeking trouble. You would do well to stay away from this Timothy you are seeking. Oh, Apollos asks in surprise. Why is that? If he's associated with this Paulus guy, then it's bad news, Linus says. Go on, Apollos urges. He seemed nice enough, but Paulus was responsible for the riot that took place maybe a year or two ago. Linus reflects aloud while scratching his head. Ironically, those rioting were fellow Jews who wanted him dead, though I don't know why. He was one of their own, but within a short time, the entire synagogue labeled him as a disturber of the peace and sought to have him tried and even executed. Linus points over to a large raised platform on the other side of the forum. In fact, it was right over there at the Bema where Gallio dismissed the case altogether. He didn't give the Jews the time of day, which only sent them into an uproar. Gallio's lictors then had to make a show of force and disperse the rioters before things got out of hand. Apollos looks around at the bima and tries to imagine the scene. He then looks over at Linus and asks, Can you show me where the synagogue is? Of course, Linus hesitates. What business do you have with the Jews? You're not one of them, are you? It's all right, my friend, Apollos replies, smiling. 
Please just help me find the synagogue, and I will remunerate you for your services. Standing amongst the few men and women gathered in the small room, Paul smiles as he looks around to see the faces looking back at him. May our Lord's grace and peace be upon you all, he says. The room quietly looks back at him without a response. Let's try this again, he says with a gentle spirit. When I say, may our Lord's grace and peace be upon you all, you then reply in kind by saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Those in the room look around at one another with some confusion. Paul tries again, may our Lord's grace and peace be upon you all. He then prompts them to reciprocate. For if we be dead with him, they begin, then we shall also live with him, Paul continues. Good. Let's try this again. Well, we're going to stop here for today. Apollos arrived in Corinth and would meet up with Timothy shortly after getting into town. How long did it take for Apollos to find him? Probably not too long, but he first had to figure out where to look. So I created a fictitious character named Linus who acted as a city guide for Apollos for a small fee. Such guides were found among any major city and found all sorts of way to become employed by well-to-do visitors. Paul had begun his third mission tour and arrived in Lystra. He discovered that little had been done with the tiny church there in Roman Galatia. Upon further assessment, gatherings had been found to be sparse and without leadership or purpose. The believers in both Lystra and Iconium, some 20 miles to the north, were mostly Jewish, were still involved with the local synagogues, and had lost touch with Paul's ministry of the gospel among them. They had taken their eyes off of the ball. They forgot about the gospel of Jesus. And that was most worrisome to Paul. So, when Paul later writes to the churches in Roman Galatia, his aim is to keep the simplicity of the gospel in front of these people. We know this particular letter as Galatians. Here is a snippet of passages that help us identify Paul's tone when writing these churches. Galatians 1, 6-9 I'm shocked that you're turning away so soon from God, who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are now following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but isn't the good news at all. You're being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. In the following chapter, Paul shares his concern about those Jewish believers who were teaching the gospel as well as requiring an adherence to the law. It was happening in Jerusalem and it was reaching throughout the Jewish communities in many cities. In Galatians 2, 4, and 5, Paul shares this. Even that question came up only because some so-called Christians there in Jerusalem, those false ones really, who were secretly brought in, they sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. 
Later in the same chapter, Paul reflects upon a time when Peter arrived in Antioch, we've shared an episode of this here, and spent time encouraging and sharing a meal with some Gentile believers. Peter stopped spending time with them after some Jewish friends from Jerusalem showed up. Paul called Peter out and said, that ain't right. Stop making the Gentiles feel ashamed that they aren't doing Jewish things. Picking up in verse 15, Paul states what he shared with Peter. You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I try to rebuild the old system of law that I already tore down. When I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there is no need for Christ to die. That's Galatians 2, 15 through 21. One final passage to consider. O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? Now, we've covered this concern of Jewish believers reverting back to the law from many angles over the past several months. But I don't know if we have simply expressed what's implied when I say the word gospel. So, I thought it might be good to just lay it out right here. The gospel is relatively easy to understand and can be divided into these four spiritual truths. Number one, while God created us to know him, our corruption keeps us from doing so. God's love for his creation, humanity, is stronger than the corrupt nature and the rebellious spirit that has kept his creation, humanity, from knowing him and being transformed by him. Struggling with this inherent rebelliousness, humanity has been fully separated from God, undeserving and only worthy of spending a sufferable eternity apart from Him. Number two, God's Son has covered our debt and mediates on our behalf. 
Yet God has shown exceptional kindness to humanity by sending his chosen, righteous, and fully pleasing Son to give his own life in exchange for the corrupt nature and rebelliousness of humanity. The Son has paid our corrupt debt in full and intercedes on our behalf, keeping us in a right relationship with God. 3. As believers, we are protected by the Son against the judgment of God. In believing upon His Son, His Son's personal sacrifice, and God's subsequent raising of the Son from the dead, God has graciously positioned believers under this righteous protection of His Son, and will keep believers free from the day of God's future judgment upon the world. Because of the Son's active ministry of interceding on behalf of all the believers out there, God continues to see those who are under the Son's protection as righteous and even incorruptible beings. Crazy, right? Yet, that's exactly how God sees us. 4. God's Son has made it possible for us to know God, be changed by God, and be with God when He returns. Those who believe upon the Son would then begin their spiritual journeys, undergoing the supernatural transformation empowerment by God's Spirit. This transformation requires believers to search out and often yield to the directives and often subtle nudges of God's Spirit who now resides within them. This ongoing transformation is fueled by the joy that naturally comes by doing things God's way, as well as remaining hopeful for the Son's return to rule the earth. At His return, believers will then partake among God's kingdom promises. While we can extend each of these truths and get more into the details, this pretty much sums up the good news of why Jesus is so important to our faith journey. Jesus is God's Son. Paul's greatest concern is that those who have been under his ministry, his ministry care, have lost sight of these four spiritual truths and have destroyed their faith journey along the way. But we're going to wrap it up. May you spend some time thinking about what God has done for you. First, while God created us to know Him, our corruption keeps us from doing so. Second, God's Son has sacrificed His life to cover our debt, and He mediates on our behalf. Third, as believers, we are protected by the Son against the judgment of God. Four, God's Son has made it possible for us to know God, be changed by God, and be with God when He returns. This has been made certain when God raised His Son from the dead in front of more than 500 witnesses. Well, that's it for this week. May God's love for you and Jesus' sacrificial protection over you be an encouragement to move forward in your own faith journey. And with that, let's move forward together. Together.